Hi there, Minix Money Podcast listeners. Uh, Matthew here. You may have come across me in the team inbox. I run a lot of the management side of Menix Money behind the scenes a lot of the time. So uh, my breakout role on the podcast, just a quick word of warning about this podcast, really. So we recorded it two weeks ago, just before the infamous mini budget. And of course, off the back of that, almost everything was completely redundant. But now, after the U-turn of the century, the podcast is back in fashion. So the show goes ahead. Uh, just a quick word of warning, though, the next budget is due to be released on the 31st of October. A nice little Halloween treat for us all. So just take that with a word of caution and enjoy the podcast. Cheers. We've been talking about the pros and cons of using a limited company for some of your income a lot recently. And that is because it's something that you ask us about a lot. And we did a whole YouTube video on it with spreadsheets and a detailed breakdown of the numbers recently. And if you haven't checked that out, check it out. It's on our YouTube channel. There are some great questions from you there, which we've answered in the comments. So have a look at that. And today, there are going to be less numbers, no spreadsheets, but we are talking about the benefits and the cons of a limited company. So we talk about who might benefit from a limited company, who might not. We talk about the issues such as IR35, how to pay tax. And we also talk about the benefits, including, of course, fully electric cars, because we know you love to hear about that. And also how to invest using your limited company in both property and stocks and shares, how to get a pension from your limited company, and how your limited company can form a part of your whole financial plan. So hopefully it's useful for you. Don't forget, if you like these podcasts, don't forget to leave us a rating, a review. And of course, if you don't want to miss every new episode that's released every Tuesday, then you're going to need to subscribe. And finally, if you could just tell your colleagues about it who might find it useful, we can all help each other to make better financial decisions. The Medics Money podcast helps doctors, dentists and other professionals make better financial decisions. Hosted by myself, Dr. Tommy Perkins, a GP. And by me, Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and chartered tax advisor. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute any form of advice and tax allowances and rates are subject to change. So on today's podcast, it is my pleasure to welcome back. I mean, you, you are semi-regular now on the podcast. We have Andy Powell, a specialist medical accountant from Mazars, and Nick Nesbitt, a independent financial advisor specializing in medics, also from Mazars. Hi, guys. Hi, Tommy. Hi, Tommy. So I've got to point out that as we record, Liz Truss is outlining a few policy points. So at the time of recording, all the numbers were accurate, but they might have changed and we'll try to sort that out. But do you want to introduce yourselves and tell us why you're qualified to talk about today's pretty technical subject? And Andy, you always go first on this. Yeah, I'm Andy Powell. As you said, I'm a healthcare accounts and tax specialist at Mazars. I'm also a board member on the snappily titled Association of Independent Specialist Medical Accountants. And also I'm married to a GP, so I do understand things from the other side of the equation. And as you said, Tommy, I'm Nick Nesbitt. I am a chartered financial planner and chartered wealth manager and a partner at Mazars. And I look after our medical financial planning specialism. So spend roughly 50% of my time advising doctors and other medical professionals on their financial position, NHS pensions, investing, life cover, etc. And similarly to Andy, I am married to a practice nurse, so have a daily insight into the life of being a medical professional. 
Yeah, it's good. You know the struggle. That makes me feel better. And you've done so many topics in the past, so many complicated topics. Today's is also fairly complicated, but it's something that we get asked about loads. And it's about limited companies because this is a complex area. Everyone's situation is different, but hopefully we're going to give you some pointers about who might benefit from it, who might not, and what are the other things to think about. So Nick, is it worth starting with a bit of a recap on why doctors might be considering using a limited company for any additional work that they do? Sure. Yeah. So there's a few reasons as to why the use of limited companies has probably become more prevalent. I know they've existed in the medical world for quite a long time, but I'd sense that their use has increased quite a lot over the last decade. At a very basic level, the use of limited companies came around from the fact that usually consultants doing additional private work either had the choice of doing that work on a self-employed basis. And if you do it on a self-employed basis, then it's taxable on you as an individual as and when you do the work. So if you're doing a 10-session NHS contract with some other responsibilities, etc., you're probably earning at a level where any additional income will be subject to some nasty rates of tax. And it may well be that you don't actually need that additional income at that point in time. So historically, people who established limited companies ran their private practice through the limited company so that the income was taxable on the company through corporation tax rates, which are lower than the higher rates of personal tax. And they built up the funds within the company and then hopefully paid a lower overall rate of tax by accessing the funds when they retired, etc. The next sort of step, an iteration of limited company planning came about when the annual allowance legislation started to become more punitive and started to catch the medical community more, probably in the early 2010s. So what we saw then when we had lower annual allowance tax rates, and these have been discussed at length on Medics Money, was any additional income that people earned through private practice would push their income levels above the thresholds where their annual allowance would start to become tapered. And therefore, doing private practice, not only would you pay higher rates of tax if you did it on a self-employed rate, but you'd also increase your level of pension taxation. So during that period, a high level of consultants would have been running their private practice through a limited company so as to try and limit the damage that was done to their annual allowance position. So that's probably a very broad Summary in the round, it's about sort of deferring the point of taxation and not suffering high levels of tax on income that you don't need. And then there are peripheral benefits around not damaging your pension tax position and trying to maintain your full annual allowance. Awesome. I mean, that all just sounds really simple and super straightforward, but I feel like Andy might be about to add some complexities in there or some reasons why you might not want to use a limited company. Andy? Yeah, so it sounds very straightforward. Go up, set a limited company, put all your income into it, and away you go. What you have to bear in mind is a limited company is its own separate legal entity. So you have lots of different other issues that you have to take into account when doing that. And what you've got to weigh up is whether some of the issues that arise from setting up a limited company when you compare it with the kind of tax deferral stuff that Nick talked about on tax mitigation stuff, whether it's actually worthwhile. And some of the areas you need to consider would be, firstly, you know, there's some legislation about 
off payroll working, often referred to as IR35. And that's in, they've been in place from the public sector since 2017. And if you are working for a public sector organisation, there has to be some kind of assessment of the employment relationship with someone who's trading via a third party organisation like a limited company. That legislation has also been extended now to the private sector as well. There's a lot of compliance aspects that now need to be performed, so would also cover private hospitals as well. So you've got to consider the employment relationship because actually just simply sticking a limited company in between who you're working for and you doesn't necessarily get you off the fact that you've got to pay tax and national insurance as an employee or an individual. VAT becomes a consideration because you have changed potentially the nature of the relationship with who you're supplying the service to. And if you've changed it from a provision of a medical service to a provision of a staff, like, you know, akin to a locum agency, then VAT could become a consideration because there are different VAT issues to do with staff provision versus healthcare provision. That's more applicable more to the locum side of things where you're doing locum work. We also, you know, you pointed out that we do have a new prime minister and maybe by the time this has come out, there may have been an emergency budget, there may not have been an emergency budget. But what that highlights to you is tax rates can change. The corporation tax rate, which is the tax rate that the companies pay, as we talk now, is 19%. But in the budget, it's forecast to go up to 25%. Liz Trust has talked about reducing tax rates. So they could reverse all that. We'll have to see what comes with that. So Whilst you can plan today based on today's tax rates, what you just have to be mindful of is tax rates change and legislation changes. So what may look good today in 10 years time may be a completely different picture. And also what we have seen is that we've seen changes in how dividends are taxed and how national insurance is applied. And actually that's narrowed the gap between self-employment and limited company usage quite significantly. Running a company requires additional administration. It is a separate legal entity. It requires separate accounts to be filed with Companies House. It requires its own tax returns to be filed. It requires its own bank accounts. It requires you know, compliance with legislation around lots of different aspects to do with running a company. You have to consider PI cover, professional indemnity cover. At the moment, you know most clinicians will have their own professional indemnity cover or will be covered through crown-based schemes. But also, if you're operating through a limited company, you're also exposing a separate legal entity to PI claims. So you have to make sure that your PI aspect is updated to cover both the company and individually. And probably the last side that you need to consider is any other legislation. And a good example is a GP. So if you've got a GP partner, operating under a PMS or GMS contract, which most do, we're often asked, well, if I set up a limited company on the side, can I do some locum work for my practice and transfer that money into a limited company and shelter the tax that way? Apart from tax issues to do with that, and there are some tax issues to do with that, actually, there's a legally compliance issue to do with that because the GMS contract prohibits that. And there's a clause in the GMS contract which stops you subcontracting to a company where you are the owner of that company. So, you know, you're in breach of your GMS contract if you do that. So lots of small accountants who don't necessarily specialize in the medical world won't pick that point up. That said, lots of negatives, but it's not all about the negative. It still is you know, important and a useful tool to have for some people. I feel like this is going to be good cop, bad cop, because Nick's a good cop because he said I could reduce the tax I pay by putting the money into limited company, which may or may not work for your individual circumstances and take advice, of course. And he said, I could also mitigate issues with annual allowance and tapering of the annual allowance. And then Andy came along and told me about IR35, corporation taxes changing, national insurance and the taxation of dividends has changed recently, which makes it less favorable maybe for the limited company. Some super niche knowledge about the legislation around a GMS contract, which is number 455, 
reason to use a specialist medical accountant for these things. You also mentioned VAT as a negative. Andy, I want you to be the good cop. So like, let's talk about expenses. You must have some good news there. Yeah. So, you know, as I say, I don't want to be super bad cop. And the tax side of things is important, particularly for higher earners, deferring tax down the line to where you're paying different rates of tax or maybe potentially using having spouse directors can work. But again, do take advice on that rather than just simply listen to this podcast. But yeah, if you stick things through a company, you can. You, there are various expenses that can be offset. Now, the expenses are very similar to self-employment in that things like you could put your professional subscriptions through the company, your medical bodies, but you can offset that against employment income. You can put travel expenses, course fees, anything to do with running a trade of that business can be put through the company, which reduces the tax liability that you're paying through the company and equally through self-employment. few additional perks. I always like this one. In a company, you are an employee of that company by default because you're a director of the company. Because if you set yourself up as a director, which you will do, you can make advantages or like having regular Christmas parties once a year and use a bit of, of the expense of having going out for a meal, etc. As long as it's a legitimate annual Christmas event, then you can get tax relief on that, which is worthwhile doing. The other big one at the moment is cars. And what I have to distinguish here is between electric low emission cars versus just box standard petrol diesel cars in that there is a different tax regime in place for those types of cars and electric cars work very well within a limited company and the reason is you get full tax relief in the year that you purchase the car and you have to pay a benefit in kind tax charge for having that car through the company but it's very very low at the moment whereas if you put it through your self-employed accounts whilst you get all the write-off in the year that you buy it you have to then restrict it by private usage so you do get more tax relief on an electric car through a company as it stands at the moment and again caveat that with changes in legislation can change tax rates so from that viewpoint you know some scope to put some more expenses through and reduce your liability i think also the other point is around the control of the income side of things because the way the company works is the company pays corporation tax on the profits that it makes so income less expenses individually you as an individual will pay additional tax on that but only when you take the money out of the company whereas if you're self-employed you pay tax on all the income when it's earned, you've got less control of which tax year it lands in. But through a company, you can actually then look at your marginal tax rates in any year and you can apply the income that comes out of the company to you to make sure you stay within those parameters. And Nick again touched on the annual allowance, particularly, you know, the tapering rate as it stands kicks in now from 200,000, which sounds a big figure. But, you know, ideally what you want to do is keep below that 200,000. If you have, say, 150,000 through your NHS job, where you want to keep your dividends below 50,000, whereas you're self-employed, you might just blitz through it and lose all that annual allowance. So yeah, lots of positives from a company where it's used properly, but it's not for everyone. Yeah. And I think that's the key thing is that at Medics Money, we're all about if you can do something yourself and there's so much you can do yourself without using someone like Andy or Nick, then that's great. But in my opinion, if you are considering anything in today's podcast, you need to speak to someone like Andy or Nick because it's so complicated. It can work amazingly. It can actually not work at all. And we see plenty of people who have gone to set up limitedcompany.com, formed the company themselves and haven't even worked out that they have to file their own accounts and have just been merrily using their own debit card to buy stuff as the company. And I'm sure you guys see that a bit as well. So yeah, we're all about helping you to help yourself, Medics Money. But in my opinion, you need to get some advice about this because it is pretty complicated. And you mentioned cars. To clarify, we're not talking about buying a car salary sacrifice, which is a whole 
different can of worms. We're talking about buying a car, an electric car, fully electric car via the limited company, which can work out really nicely. Okay, let's move on to something real easy then. I know basically what everyone's tuned in to ask. Should I, as a doctor, run my private practice through a limited company? In one word, if possible. Yeah, I don't think I can give you one word, Tommy. I think what I would say here is that if you need the income that you're earning through private practice, then the answer is most likely no, generally. From a tax perspective, it'll probably end up broadly here or there. But why bother with the additional hassle of a company if what's coming into it goes out of it each year? That's not an absolute, but it's a, probably a good general rule. I think that where you don't need the income that you're earning through your private practice, then you're more likely to see benefit from the limited company structure and see a reason for going down that route. However, a lot of people come to us and want to talk through the maths of it all. And I think we've had previous podcasts on medics money where we've done exactly that actually in my experience quite often the final decision doesn't come down to the tax rate on one side of the coin versus the tax rate on the other it actually comes down to the person's appetite for that type of planning or their appetite for a simple life quite frankly and i think if you're the type of person that quite enjoys a sort of financial structure and a bit of a sort of an entrepreneurial spirit then you might well go down the limited company route. If you're somebody who really values a simple life and is happy to pay possibly a bit more tax to have a simple life, then you'll probably end up just choosing to keep your private practice on a self-employed basis. So that wasn't a one-word answer, Tommy, but it's hopefully a guide as to which camp you might fall into depending on what type of person you are. I think, as you said, it is certainly an area of advice and not wanting to plug professional advice too much, but it's certainly an area of planning that you probably need help to understand all of the tax positions and the implications given your specific sort of circumstances and the nature of your private practice. Yeah. I asked for a one word answer. That's as humorous as the podcast gets because it's so complicated. And as you say, it just depends on your individual circumstances and preferences. But I think that's a nice guide that if you need the money today, and the tax thing is not probably going to work out for you. But if you can afford to keep the money in the company, it may, may work out. Am I putting words in your mouth, Andy, or is that a fair short summary, not advice? Yeah, that's one scenario. I think Nick will come on to other scenarios where it also is advantageous, potentially, if you're keeping the money in and looking at a long-term planning. The way I always sort of talk about the limited company use if you don't need the money immediately the way we tend to talk about it is as a secondary pension asset or a secondary savings asset so naturally nearly all people listening to this podcast will be members of the nhs pension scheme will be building up what we would perceive to be a pretty good pension asset that'll pay out when you get to retirement what the limited company option does provides a sort of what I'd describe as a low resistance way of building up a secondary pension asset. So when we've got sort of beyond those initial discussions with clients around, do you need the money? No. Are you happy with the extra complexities that come with a limited company? Yes. Okay. Well, what sort of strategy are we looking at here? What we tend to be moving towards there is, right, okay, well, you're going to build up some funds over time in this limited company. And that's a bit of a sort of never, never strategy because you're just building up this asset within a company. But the plan as we have it then is for that asset to then give you flexibility potentially when you retire. So one option is that you choose to retire a few years earlier, completely drop all of your medical work, and you just rely on your company, draw down dividends, 
and supplement your income until a point at which your NHS pension comes into play. And I think that can be really, really nice bit of planning because if you take £50,000 worth of dividends in those years, you'll pay very little dividend tax on that income, whereas you would have paid a very high level of self-employed income had you paid it when you earned the money. And also it enables you to maximise the value of the NHS pension you get, which, as will have been said hundreds of times on these podcasts, is highly valuable given its inflation-proof nature. The other way that it can be used is some people might wind up the company to create a lump sum that they then go and buy into their dream holiday home or pass down to the children or whatever else they might have a lump sum need for. Or they might use it as a supplementary income on top of their NHS pension, perhaps to take them up to the next tax threshold or something like that. Or one or two of my clients just keep it as a long-term sort of family wealth vehicle where they're perhaps running investment portfolios or even property portfolios. And that's something we'll probably touch on in a second. But where it does seem to work, that's the sort of strategy that we'd look to adopt there. Yeah. I mean, should we go on to talk about that in a bit more detail? Because again, you're like the good cop. That all sounds awesome. So, you know, go in a bit more detail about how people might consider using the income that they get from the limited company? Sure. Yeah, it's quite nice to be good cop once. It's normally annual allowance and lifetime allowance issues that we're talking about. So it's good to have some positive spin on these things. Yeah, again, this sort of stuff is only likely to be suitable for those people who are interested in investment and growing wealth and those sorts of things. Some people naturally aren't, and that's absolutely fine. But if you are, yeah, you're going to be storing up this money in a company. And as we all know from recent interest rate discussions, etc., you can't really just leave cash lying around for what might be a 10, 15, 20 year period. So if you're going along this path of building up limited company funds with a view to doing something in the future, then the obvious question that's posed is, well, what am I going to do with these funds? How am I going to hold them in the meantime before I actually use them when I get to retirement? And I guess the first thing to say is there's a certain level of things you will do each year. One is you'll probably pay out a dividend to use up your dividend allowance. So everybody has a £2,000 a year dividend allowance. That means you can pay £2,000 to yourself tax-free each year, which is a nice small bonus for all the hard work you've done within the limited company. There is also scope for you to include a spouse as a shareholder. A lot of people will sort of do a 50-50 company ownership with their spouse. And in that scenario, you could declare a £4,000 dividend and use both dividend allowances. Also on the spouse front, if a spouse or a family member or somebody else is genuinely undertaking work for the business, and I heavily underscore that genuinely undertaking work because they do have to do something. If they are, then you have the ability to pay a salary and potentially even pension contributions from the business for them on top of the dividends that you can pay to them as shareholders. So that's just some things you could be thinking about annually in terms of extracting profits. Some people might, for example, take more dividends out annually. So if you'd reduce your sessions and perhaps your NHS income was 80,000, you might just take a dividend of 20,000 to take you up to that nasty 100,000 pound limit that again will have been spoken about on lots of previous podcasts. So there's an element of annual planning that you can do with the company to extract some value tax efficiently. But generally, most value will be rolled up and therefore the question begs, okay, I've got this cash now, probably not going to use it for X number of years and therefore I need to do something with it to try and make it at least keep pace with inflation, hopefully grow. And so generally where that discussion leads to is a comparison of property investment and liquid 
asset investment. And liquid asset investment is just a financial advisor term for investing in stocks and shares and other assets that you can go and buy on a market somewhere. Obviously, property investment is about going out there, finding a property, buying it, managing it, renting it out, etc. And there's no right or wrong there. Depending on which property you buy, depending on which stocks and shares you buy, either can do equally well, either can outperform the other. That's, again, a question of your personal knowledge, experience, attitude to risk and hassle. Naturally, property can be more hassle because you've got a tenant. They can call you up about a broken dishwasher. But there's bricks and mortar there that you can go and look at and feel comfortable there's some value there. The stock market on the other side, as investors will tell you at the moment, can be very volatile. It can be unnerving. And you've got to work out which is the right option for you. From my experience, most doctors who are building up funds in a limited company take the investment route, i.e. investing in stocks and shares. The reason for that, I think, is probably twofold. One, the nature of the build-up is that it's quite gradual. You're sort of adding maybe five, £10,000 a month of net profit into an investment portfolio. So if you're trying to build up funds to buy a property, it can take you quite a long time to do that. On the other side of the coin, and it's more of a lifestyle point, is they just don't want the hassle. I don't think it'll come as a surprise to anybody on these podcasts that lots of doctors don't have much spare time and they don't want to spend whatever spare time they do have dealing with property management issues. So typically, you tend to see people looking for the lower hassle option of invested assets. And basically, what you do there is you set up a vehicle, we would usually keep it relatively straightforward, that can receive a monthly or a quarterly annual payment of surplus net profits and you invest that gradually over time and it just builds up and effectively depending on how you structure it the profits can either be deferred until the point at which you come to realize the investments or they can be taxed on an ongoing basis so each year it just adds a little bit to your corporation tax liability and Again, typically, we'd probably go down that latter route. So that's probably where we get to is people just building up gradually, as I said, five to 10,000 a month, I suppose, depending on how much private practice you're doing. And then as and when they get to a point of considering partial or full retirement, we start to open the book again and say, right, how are we going to use these funds? Are we going to try and extract a lump sum from the company or are we going to start paying out dividends tax efficiently to supplement your income? And that's effectively the playbook really tommy yeah it sounds very good again good work good cop andy anything that you're gonna throw in there yeah i mean as nick says as a wealth vehicle or wealth growth vehicle it can work very well just being bad cop there just a, a word of caution quickly on property is that the kind of properties nick was talking about is really properties where you're renting them out to third parties if you're starting to use those properties for your own use so if you you know you can buy a holiday property and want to put it through your limited company and you're just using it for your family, then that kind of scenario wouldn't work because there would be a charge for using that property from the company. But, you know, third-party rental properties work very, very well. You know? So, yeah, it is as that long-term planning vehicle, and it is a long-term planning vehicle. It's not just about short-term tax gain, but it's about protecting your assets and growing your assets in a different way to supplement when you need it later in life. It is a very good vehicle. We do, you know, perhaps with doctors, everyone is so use the NHS pension. Everyone's very much dominated by the NHS pension as being their long-term savings plan. And quite rightly, it's the, you know, it's the main part of any plan. But actually, what is a pension? A pension is just an income in retirement when other income stops. So where you get that income from, you know, if you're not in the NHS pension, it's usually a multitude of different sources, you know, from various different savings. And this is really just applying this to doctors as well. I was just going to add in that, and this is sort of 
anecdotal really, but I think I'll contribute a bit to the bad cop side. And we've said it a couple of times, but it's probably can't emphasize enough. The key upsides of sort of self-employed is everything's done in the here and now. Your point of taxation is known. We all know what rates of tax we're going to pay this year. So if you're doing an operation privately and you're getting paid X pounds for doing so, you know that the net payment into your pocket once you've been through the self-assessment process is Y. The big problem with the limited company route is, as I said earlier, it's a bit of a never-never game and you just don't know what eventual rates of tax you're going to pay. None of us can predict how the politics will change over the coming years and how the tax rates will flow. I think the other point that I was just going to make on the other side of the coin is, and this is just from anecdotal evidence and experiences, that if people run private practice on the self-employed basis, then they naturally receive less or they've got less to save because it goes through a higher rate of taxation than it would in the limited company. And then I think natural human behavior is to be tempted to treat yourself to a holiday and whatever, because you're working very hard. So naturally, the level of savings, I think, from people who operate on a self-employed basis is notably lower than those on a limited company basis. But they probably treat themselves to more things than those people on the limited company. So there is an element of living in the here and now and having more money available on a self-employed basis to go and enjoy yourself, spend time with the family, et cetera, or wanting to advance that point of financial security. And I gave a talk a few months ago around how doctors can get to a point of, well, Andy and I did actually, didn't we, Andy? Getting to a point of financial security at 50, which was an interesting topic. But those doctors who are really focused on getting to a point of financial security, I'd say that's where the limited company does come into play quite well, because it does enable you and gives you that structure where you're sort of regimented into saving quite heavily on a regular basis whereas you're less so on a self-employed basis we touched on pensions i mean we don't want to open that can of worms this late in the game but you did mention that a limited company could provide a pension do we need a bit more on that yeah, probably a couple of final points on pensions and life cover. We get asked a lot. Okay, so I'm operating through a limited company. Should I be making pension contributions for myself or indeed somebody else involved in the business? General rule, and hopefully people listening to this podcast will know what I'm about to say here. General rule, most people operating through a limited company will probably be seeing enough growth in their NHS pension scheme that they should steer well clear of making any private pension contributions via their limited company. There will be some people, for whatever reason, that's not the case. Perhaps they've got very small NHS service now or they've opted out of the scheme, although clearly they should consider re-entry potentially. As I said, if you've got other people involved, it might be a spouse or, or whoever, if they are providing genuine services and value to the business, then you can pay them. And by pay them, I mean, give them a total remuneration package that's in line with the work that they do. So for example, if you had a spouse that was doing a role that was worth £20,000 a year, you might choose to pay them a salary of £9,000 or so, so in line with the ideal director's salary, and then choose to make a pension contribution for them at a level to bring them up to that market rate that you can pay for them. And that's something that where those spouses are actively involved in the business, we would probably be looking looking at. Again, it just comes down to need for that money, etc. But there's definitely that. And that's probably the main place that pensions interact with the limited company planning. Just on life cover, we often get asked, can I sort of arrange life insurance through my limited company? There are ways in which you can do that. But typically, they are linked 
to the level of remuneration that you are taking from the company. And as we've talked here, most people with a medical limited company won't be taking much remuneration. So typically, they don't serve a particularly great purpose in terms of providing private insurance. Amazing run through there. I was going to try and summarize it myself, but there was so much there. I mean, sort of take home messages for me and definitely correct me if I'm wrong, because you're the experts, I'm the layperson. As Nick said at the start, it can work well to reduce the tax you pay now in limited company if you can afford to keep it in there and don't need it as income. Also, can mitigate annual allowance issues and taper issues by keeping your income below the thresholds. Andy Badcop told us all the issues to think about IR35 tax, VAT, national insurance and dividends, the legislation specific to GPs. Good cop bit from Andy was the car. And then there's so much that if you can keep the money in there, there's so much you can do. And as you said, the aim here is to safeguard your future, to give you choices in the future. So you might get to age 50. I really hope that you don't get to age 50 and decide you don't want to work in the NHS, but you might have had enough by then. And if you've done all this, you have the option to make that choice. What did I miss in my summary? Correct any errors? Yeah, no, I think you've captured most of it there, Tommy. I've just realised that the only reason Nick asked me along to talks with him that is so he can talk about all the good stuff and I sit along doing the bad stuff. I think that that's something for the future for me to learn from and, and take on board. We'll repay it another time, Andy. Yeah, but it goes back to actually there is a role for limited companies for some people, not for everyone, but for some people, and it can be a very useful tool as it stands with current tax legislation. Yeah, I think just to go off the back of that, I'd say that anybody who's starting to build up a, a decent private practice, just consider it. I think there's a good chance that you'll look at it. And at least for the time being, if you need the money, you might well say, I'm just going to keep earning and having the money available to me now to pay the mortgage, which is probably going to be getting more expensive, the energy bills, which are probably going to be getting more expensive, the school fees, et cetera, et cetera. But there might come a point perhaps where you've paid off the mortgage, the kids have left home, your private practice is now of a really sort of substantial size that actually then you can flip into limited company mood and start to focus more on that long-term wealth accumulation and storing it up for the retirement rather than just funding the here and now. Brilliant. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, again, I said the podcast was growing massively. Over 30,000 people listen last month. And that's because people are finding it so useful, but it takes, a, this is highly technical content. It takes a lot of time to prepare. And we really, really appreciate your input on this because otherwise it would just be me and Ed talking. So thank you so much for your time. I'm just looking at the podcast latest chart actually, but I know that you're not competitive at all. So you don't want to know where you're standing in terms of all time rankings. So I won't talk about that because you don't care, right? Well, as long as we're top, that's all that matters. <laughs> I think the listeners would want to know, Tommy. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> so you're in at number seven with, Ooh. you probably don't remember it, but somebody emailed me to say that, like we get so many great emails to say that they'd listened to this episode and it had helped them avoid a six-figure annual allowance charge. So it's episode 80 where I just fired questions at you from the listeners about annual allowance, lifetime allowance, private pension. Yeah, it was hectic, but somebody emailed that. So we love, I mean, doing this. It's so rewarding to help you. Something weird happened to me the other day. I phoned up the A&E consultant because I needed some advice on a patient about what I should do with them. And they were a Medics Money podcast listener. So it just felt 
amazing to me to be helping our colleagues out using your expertise andy and nick and obviously the only consultant helped me with my clinical conundrum so thank you to everyone who's listening and sharing thank you so much to all the experts including andy and nick we'll see where this one comes in at the charts best way to contact you guys email addresses probably so i don't know <laughs> do you want to stick them up with the podcast or should we try and spell them out <laughs> on email time mine is nicholas.nesbit at mazars.co.uk you should be able to find us on our website as well and andy i'm andrew.pow that's p-o-w at mazars.co.uk and you can also find us via the medics money website of course thank you so much for your time and i'll see you all again on the next episode of the podcast thank you so much for listening everyone take care thanks Thanks.